We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Top Dogs Podcast here on the Field of 68 Media Network. My name is Rob Doster. It is Monday morning, and we have to talk about another uh, frustrating um, UConn result. The Huskies went on the road to Omaha, took on Creighton, and lost 56-53 to in a tough, hard-fought, uh, sometimes frustrating, and not really all that uh, aesthetically pleasing game to watch. Um it was definitely a defensive struggle. I think that is <laughs> everybody that watched that game can understand that. Uh, but I will say this. I thought UConn played really well. It makes me feel good about where this team is moving forward. Um, and I have no qualms about the results. I don't want to get into an argument about, oh, you're you're enjoying these moral victories. We'll talk about all that. We'll get into all that. I have a lot to say about this game, specifically in Creighton uh, as well. But before I do a couple of programming notes, remember, please Go rate and review this podcast uh, five stars. Say nice things about me in the comments. Make me happy as a podcast. So that's the kind of thing that really does help us in the algorithms, whether you listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Make sure that you are subscribed to the YouTube channel, uh, Field of 68 After Dark. We're live 11 p.m. every single night throughout the rest of the season. Uh, we had a lot of big names, big talent on that show. It's kind of the flagpole of the company, flagpole of the business, and if you're a college basketball fan, you should be watching it every single night. We're simulcast on Sirius XM Channel 84, college sports radio as well, which is uh, pretty cool. Um, lastly, the Field of 68 Daily. Uh, there is every weekday you can get um, a thousand words sent directly to your email inbox. It's the best way to keep up on the sport as a whole. And we just added a premium product as well. It's going to come through on Saturdays on the weekends. Uh, it's $9.99 for the rest of the season. You can sign up. There's a link in the description below. Um, if you like the newsletter, if you like the product, it's a great way to help support us and help support the writers that have been pushing that product out. $10, really not all that much. It's two cups of coffee at Starbucks. So uh, yeah, if you are able to afford it, it definitely is much appreciated. All right, 
So let's talk about this game. Let's talk about this loss and let's talk about what happened on the floor. Uh, Before we do, I want to put this into context. I've been saying for a while that I think that Creighton is the best team in the Big East. Um, I think that that is starting to become more of a popular sentiment. I think people are starting to see how well that they are playing now that they are fully healthy. And I think people are not overlooking the fact that they have won eight straight games anymore, which they have. They have the nation's fifth longest winning streak in all of college basketball. They are a very, very, very good team. They're not quite all that deep. You know, they basically have five guys, but that is a very, very good basketball team. Let's put it into context. Let's understand exactly what I'm saying here. As of today, as of Monday morning, they are 10th on Kempom, despite the fact that they lost six straight games and eight of 11 games at one point in the middle of the season. With Ryan Kalkbrenner, uh, their star center, on the floor, they are 17-5 and when he is in the lineup, when he is playing. Uh, These are the games they have lost with Ryan Kalkbrenner healthy. They lost by two to Arizona in the final of the Maui Invitational. They lost by five at Texas, who was a top-10 team in college basketball. They lost that game at UConn by nine. They lost by three at Xavier. The only other loss they took was against Nebraska at home when they only put up 53 points. Uh, that was the game before Kalkburn ended up missing time with, I believe it was Mono, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and according to Kempom, that was the worst game that he's played all season long. He had by far his lowest offensive rating, uh, and he was just not himself in that game. Creighton is the best defensive team in the Big East. According to Ken Palm, in Big East play, they're leading the uh, they're leading the league in defensive efficiency. They are the third best offensive team in Big East play, according to Ken Palm. They are the only team in the Big East that is currently in the top three in both adjusted offensive efficiency and adjusted defensive efficiency, and they lead the conference in efficiency margin. Which, according to the stat nerds that are usually pretty good at determining this kind of a thing, that is the best way to determine who the best team is in the sport and who the best team is in a specific conference. Creighton is really, really damn good. I'm going to take it a step further. Bart Torvik is a site that is a kind of similar to Kempom in terms of efficiency ratings that are adjusted according to strength of schedule and all these different things. According to Torvik, since Kalkbrenner returned from his illness, Creighton is a top three team in America. The only teams better than them during this winning streak over the course of the last four weeks are Alabama and Creighton. Two teams, or I'm sorry, Alabama and Purdue, two teams that everybody agrees are probably the two best teams in America. And along with Houston, two of the teams most likely to go out and win a national title. Creighton, point blank period, is a good enough team to win a national title. For my money, they are a top five team in America. In the snapshot in this moment right now, there are not five teams in America that are playing better than Creighton. Will that continue? I don't know. Will they have a sprained ankle that kind of torpedoes their season because they basically have five guys? I don't know. Will foul trouble end up biting them in the ass in the tournament? I don't know. I'm not saying that they're guaranteed to get to a Final Four. What I'm saying is that in a year where there is no great team, where there is no team that stands out above everybody, where there is no 2021 Baylor, where there is no 2018 Villanova, where there is no 2019 UVA, Creighton is as good as anybody in the country. Point blank, period. And UConn went into their building in front of 18,000 people on a Saturday afternoon on national television, on Big Fox, and they came a toenail away for getting that thing to overtime, despite the fact that they were down by nine points off the rip, and despite the fact they were down by six points with four minutes left, and despite the fact that Trey Alexander made a little floater in the lane off the glass to put Creighton up by five with a minute 30 left on the clock. I thought, number one, 
I thought that was as good as we've seen UConn defensively in probably since December. They were moving. They were rotating. They were keeping their man in front of them. Um, their ability to defend ball screens was really, really impressive. One thing that Creighton really likes to do is be is, is run guys off of Calipari or get him rolling to the rim and either throw that lob up to him or find somebody in the weak side corner. And uh, they were able to defend that really well. They tagged really well. Uh, they communicated really well. They kept their guys in front despite the fact that Greg McDermott is a really creative offensive mind. I thought they were really, really, really good on the defensive end of the floor. And uh, one of the things. One of the criticisms that we've had during this stretch where UConn has not been playing great is that they haven't been a great defensive team during that stretch. They haven't been able to get a ton of stops. They haven't been able to force some turnovers. They haven't really done all that well in defensive glass. They didn't force a, a, a million turnovers, but they really kept Creighton from being able to get good looks. I thought it was a terrific defensive performance. Um, I also thought that we saw a lot more energy on the offensive glass than we have. Uh, in, in recent weeks from this UConn team, they got 18 offensive rebounds. Uh, they were able to um, keep possessions alive. Part of the reason they were able to stay close down the stretch of this game was because they were able to get second chance opportunities. And hell, if they made a couple of their kickout threes and we might be having a very different conversation. I'm going to get into that in a little bit. But the bottom line is this. Pretending I'm sipping my tea here. I'm not saying that this should be considered a moral victory. Fuck moral victories at this point in the season, right? Fuck uh, the idea that you're proving how good you are. I, like, that's not what I'm saying here. But we need to have perspective, right? You need to be able to say this was a free hit. This is the toughest game that UConn is going to play this season. Going on the road to play this Creighton team in that environment, in this moment in time when they are playing as well as they are. It is the toughest game that UConn had on their schedule. And those dudes fought and they scrapped and they played their asses off and they left every single thing that they had on the floor for 40 minutes. And they were one or two made shots away from finding a way to land just an absolutely incredible win, season altering win. I don't know how much more you can ask out of this group. And I know people are going to criticize Dan Hurley for some certain things. And um, there's going to be talk about, oh, he couldn't do this and oh, he didn't do that. And oh, he didn't make enough adjustments. And we're going to get into all that because I went through today uh, before I recorded this and watched every single possession in depth and broke down the film of this entire game. And I want to talk about the, uh, I, I mentioned they were one or two shots away. Let's talk about those one or two shots. So um, one of the things that I tracked while watching this game was uh, the chances that UConn had in the second half to either tie the game or take the lead in the final 12 minutes. If you remember, they were down nine in the first half. Then Snogo hit that three uh, right at the buzzer halftime to cut it to two. Then Hawkins had the four-point play early in the second half to put him up. Uh, Creighton immediately scored five straight. So after that, after you, uh, Creighton scored those five straight points to take the lead back, UConn had 15 possessions in about the final 14 minutes or so where they had a chance to tie the game or take the lead. They only scored on two of those possessions. And in a vacuum, that does not sound great. But I don't think that that was, I think that had a lot more to do with variance and a lot more to do with Creighton's defense than it did with anything to do with the scheme that Danny Hurley put together with this team's ability to execute in uh, high level situations to be able to hit crunch time shots. Like maybe there's a little bit of a, uh, a mental thing there where, um, they they weren't able to hit the big shots in the big moments, but I I, I cannot for the life of me watch that game and say UConn was not able to execute. Dan Hurley did not draw up good plays, 
and UConn's offense needs to be completely reevaluated and readjusted. I thought that they ran good stuff and they got good shots and they got the shots that they want. They just didn't go in. Let's break it down. So of those 15 possessions, I say that there were three that to me were very clear mistakes by the players. And I'm not trying to throw the players on the bus. I'm just saying that sometimes you don't make good decisions on the floor, right? Uh, when it was 40 to 37, Alex Caravan made a bad decision in transition. He had a like a 25 foot three. Sonogo was still back on defense. It was four on five. There's about 20 seconds left on the shot clock. I don't think that's a great shot. I think Caravan is going to hear about that when they watch the film. Um, the next possession, he got called for a moving screen, which like that's the point of emphasis in college basketball this year. Uh, Creighton got called for three of them. UConn got called for three of them in this game. It's just, it is what it is. Those are going to get called. You got to be, uh, very mindful of setting screens when you're out on the perimeter, when, when officials are looking at it. And the last one was the three on one fast break. I thought DR probably should have thrown the lob to Andre Jackson. Jackson was expecting it. If you remember, he went and he jumped in the DR instead of throwing the lob kind of went with the wraparound pass around the defender hit Jackson in the chest. Uh, but even then they weren't able to take the lead off of that play, but it still ended up with Naheem Aline getting a wide open three in the corner. Um, and then after an offensive rebound, Jordan Hawkins ended up getting a really good look from three as well. And then they got another offensive rebound and Kling and missed a putback. So it's not like that resulted in UConn not being able to get a good shot on that possession. They created extra opportunities off of a missed shot, which is kind of what Dan Hurley wants. All right. So let's talk about some of the other chances that they had in the second half, right? By my count, there were, 12 possessions in the half court where UConn had a chance to take the lead or tie the game. And I thought out of those 12, eight or nine of them arguably were uh, good sets and good shots. And you got what you wanted out of the possession, right? Um, some of them were, for example, uh, you know, Adama getting isolated on the block, going to one against Calc Brenner, getting to lane, getting to his left shoulder, missing a jump hook. Sometimes he's going to make them. Sometimes he's going to miss them. You kind of live and die with that, right? Another one was you had Jordan Hawkins coming off of a curl and he got in the lane and he missed a runner. In an ideal world, you probably want him pulling up from like 12 feet and shooting a jump shot. I don't think the runner is the worst shot in the world. And I think a lot of the fact that he missed that shot had to do with uh, how well Trey Alexander was defending him. There's a reason why Creighton is the best defensive team in the Big East. It is what it is. That's the shot that you want. You live with it. Sometimes it goes in. Sometimes it doesn't. Right. You can't. He's not going to make every single shot. It is what it is. There was another one where Naheem Aline missed a, a 10 foot pull up off a pick and roll a shot that he hit in the first half. Exact same possession. Um, there was another one where they were able to get Adama Sonogo isolated at the foul line and he was able to make a play going one on one against Ryan Kalkbrenner, made a shot coming back over his left shoulder, hit the jump hook. That's good offense. That's what you want. Uh, they had a bunch of chances with Hawkins coming off of curls where Creighton defended it really well and possession ended up dying out. There was another one where Caravan threw a cross-court pass and had Andre Jackson wide open in the corner, and he ended up missing the three. Um, so I thought that overall, the offensive execution, the stuff that they were running was fun. Sometimes the shots didn't go in. And I don't think that – I mean, that's not necessarily a criticism on the players. It's not necessarily a criticism on the coach. I think that that probably has more to do with Creighton's defense and the fact that they played that game on the road than anything else. So I'm not really all that concerned uh, about some of the X's and O's down the stretch. The issues that I – honestly, I don't even want to say the issues that I have because I thought that UConn played a very good game. They played a very smart game, and I thought that some of the tweaks that they made offensively are – eventually going to be good in the long term so let's talk about that right so one of the things that i did for this was i opened up questions um to some people that listen i asked on twitter for people to send in some questions and so i'm going to kind of answer them 
while also talking about this game kind of big picture. So the first one came in from Vince Hack L and uh, Louis Rusconi, both on Twitter, and they, they kind of go hand in hand. So let's start with this. How will Tristan's confidence be after a disappointing game? He had four points, three assists. I'm sorry, two points, four assists, three turnovers on one for four shooting in 26 minutes. And Lewis asked, what do you think UConn needs to do to keep Andre engaged and active when his shots aren't falling? So let's start with Tristan. I'm not worried about Tristan at all. Um, I think that the fact that he had a quiet game had more to do with UConn's game plan offensively and Creighton, the way that Creighton defended them more than anything else. So uh, let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about what UConn tried to do. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm sorry. I'm sitting here taking a sip while I'm doing this. I got a little bit of a cold over the weekend, trying to make sure that my voice uh, stays intact. So one of the emphases that we saw emphasis is, I don't know if that's a real word. Um, one of the things that you can emphasize in the half court was putting Andre Jackson in the strong side corner and then getting, whether it's Tristan Newton or Jordan Hawkins, sometimes even Alex Caravan, getting them coming off of screens at the top of the key to their right hand forcing Calc Brenner to play in drop coverage and then throwing the ball back to Adama Sonogo. There was two things that this created. One, it got Adama like a lot of wide open threes. I think he finished three for seven, hit three of them in the first half and missed three good looks in the second half, right? Um, but the other part of it is that when you have Andre Jackson in the strong side corner, right, as you're driving down the right-hand side of the lane with Jackson in the corner, it engages his defender. So when you throw the ball back to Adama Sonogo, you have Ryan Calc Brenner, uh, closing out so Adama can attack that closeout. And one of the things we saw was his ability to drive left, kick the ball out to the shooter in the corner. Uh, we got a couple buckets out of that. One time it was um, he drove and he got Hassan Diara for a wide open uh, three in the corner. Um, another time he was able to drive left, come back to his right and hit a little jump hook. So I thought that that was a really creative tweak and a smart way to try to uh, be able to hide the fact that Andre Jackson's defender wasn't guarding him. You created the two-man game on the weak side of the floor, and all while 
uh, kind of engaged Andre's defender. So I thought that was really smart game plan, and it's part of the reason why Tristan didn't really get much going. Look, drop coverage means the big guy is playing off of the screener, the, the defensive big guy is playing off of the screener, and you have the guy trailing over the top. So not only is Tristan driving into the help defender, you have Ryan Kalkbrenner there, and you have uh, Ryan Nemhard right there on him. It's basically going one on three, and it was really smart of him the way that he was able to get the ball back to Sonogo. That was the game plan. So I think just my opinion, maybe I'm wrong. This is what I get from watching the tape. I haven't gotten, I haven't talked to the staff about this, but I think that's kind of what they were looking for. So I'm not super concerned about the fact that Tristan didn't have a huge game um, in this matchup. And I think it's also fair to say Creighton's really good defensively. It is what it is. All right. Um, the other thing that they did uh, to kind of create opportunities for um, for Adama Sonogo uh, and to try to hide Andre Jackson's defender was um, they would run an action to get Adama isolated at the foul line. And then what they would do is on the each side of the floor, they would run a pin down action. And that meant that you had defenders engaged. You had guys coming off of screens. You had screeners that had to be worried about it. And it let Sonogo kind of go one-on-one against Kalkbrenner. Scored twice in the first half on it. Scored once in the second half on it. Um, and he was able to get a couple assists out of it. If you remember the first half, there was one time where he drove. Uh, Shireman actually came on the double, and he was able to dump the ball down to Andre Jackson, who was able to get a dunk out of it. Um, and I thought that that was a really smart way to kind of free up Andre Jackson's uh, defender as well. Um, and it, so there was the to me, those were the two things that I noticed that I haven't necessarily noticed a ton um, in in recent uh, recent games that UConn has played. So I thought that those were the two tweaks that they put in, and I thought it worked uh, with varying degrees of success. But you know, I thought that they were smart game plan tweaks, and I thought it was smart for them to use it in this game. Um, as far as what UConn needs to do to keep Andre engaged and active when the shots aren't falling. One of the things was what they were doing was using him as the weak side screener. Another thing was to have him in the strong side corner and use him as like a rim runner in the dunker spot. What you would do if you had uh, someone like a Clint Capella on the floor, right? Just have him standing by the rim and use him as the vertical spacer. They haven't really mastered the art of that at this point, uh, but it's something where you're seeing it a little bit more in a couple more possessions here, a couple more possessions there. Uh, I would like to see him get used more in lobs on, on the offensive end of the floor. Uh, so hopefully that'll be something that happens as, as teams start guarding him, just have him run to the rim, throw it up, let him go dunk on somebody. Um, but I also think, so Andre didn't play great in the first half. I think he missed five shots in the first six minutes. Uh, then he ended up getting subbed out, came back in, didn't have a great first half. I thought he was much, much better in the second half. And one thing that I noticed, the first play that they ran at a halftime was it, it, it's a set that they run a whole bunch where they have Andre fake like he's going to set a backswing for Caravan, flash back to the ball, and then have our, uh, Jordan Hawkins run off of a staggered screen to the top to try to get him an open three. But the first thing that they did, the first time they ran it, um, they threw the ball into Jackson in the post. He turned around and he had a little like three-foot floater off the glass, made a shot, saw the ball go through the basket, and – um confidence is up feeling himself a little bit feeling good about himself coming out of the break uh, and i thought that he was much better defensively in the second half i think you saw him hit a little uh he had like an 18 foot floater um the next time that he shot the ball uh about two minutes later he had another one where he drove to the rim he missed the shot but he was able to fight and keep the ball um keep the ball active and keep the ball uh alive i'm sorry and they got a second chance point out of it you know i think um one of the things that is important to note is 
you know, as much as Andre struggles offensively, part of the reason why UConn was able to get so many second chance opportunities um, and so many second chance points in the second half was uh, how active he was and how athletic he was and his, his work on the offensive glass. So um, what does Hurley need to do to keep Andre Jackson active and engaged? Like just keep doing what he's been doing. Right. I thought that it was, especially in the second half, I thought Andre was uh, very, very good on that. And the floor, he got beat once or twice by Baylor Shireman. Um, there were two, uh, where I thought that a moving screen should have been called on Kalkbrenner off the ball. One was very obvious. It was after uh, it was after Hawkins gave them the lead on the very next possession. Um, they ran Shireman off of a baseline screen, and Kalkbrenner took a step as Andre was coming by him, knocked him about three feet off the ball, uh, and Shireman got a wide-open three and banged it. That should have been a moving screen in my mind, so I'm not blaming Andre for that one. Um, it wasn't his best defensive game, but I thought he was good enough, uh, especially in the second half. So um, I, I'm not I'm – not, really all that where I think that they're kind of finding some ways to make it work with Andre. It's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be beautiful. It's always going to be somewhat frustrating to watch, but that just kind of is the hand that we've been dealt as UConn fans at this point, right? It is what it is. Um, Got to find a way to get him going because I think UConn is better when he's on the floor. The other thing that I would note is that we've seen an uptick in Naheem Aline's minutes in the second half of the season. And I would focus on getting him more time on the floor. I like the lineups when it's Tristan Newton, Jordan Hawkins, Naheem Aline, and Alex Caravan at the four um, when Andre's not playing well more than anything else that they can put out there if you're not going to have Andre Jackson on the floor. So uh, I would just that, – that's what I would say is keep him involved, try to get an easy look in the start of the half, get his confidence going a little bit, um, and then when he's not playing well, getting he get, getting Naheem Aline on the floor because I think that he's look he's better off the dribble than I realized. He's hit some pull ups last couple last couple of games. They put him in some ball screen actions and it's worked. He'd be a floor spacer, and I think that he's actually a, a good defender. He's not great. Um, he's a little bit smaller. He's not going to be able to kind of mess things up as much defensively. But he's not he's not a liability on that end of the floor like a Joey Calcaterra is. So uh, I would play more minutes for Naheem Aline. Um, Another question I got asked, this was actually DM, so I'm not going to put the name out there for who it was, but why didn't Donovan Klingon play more in this matchup? And for me, well, one, I don't think Klingon has necessarily been great since Biggie's play started. Um, he's got a little bit of a high center of gravity. You know, when you're not guarding Andre Jackson, it kind of eliminates what Klingon does really well, and that's as the rim runner. Um He's not someone you're going to throw the ball to in the post and have him go make a play. He's not someone that's going to be able to space the floor a little bit and make a play. You can't do the ISOs at the foul line the way that you've done with Adama Sonogo. So he's really like a guy that's going to go get offensive rebounds, that's going to block some shots. He's not great switching. He's not great on the perimeter. I don't think he's as good in ball screens as Adama is. Um, so he is a little bit limited. Now, what I will say is that there was a there was a play in the first half. They ran the Spain pick and roll, which is basically like you run a pick and roll and have a, a second defender set a back screen on the guy that's supposed to be guarding the big guy. Um, and they got a lob out of it because they had Naheem Aline on the weak side, so the tagger was engaged. Uh, Andre Jackson wasn't on the floor there. But when Andre's on the floor and that extra defender is in the paint, you're just there's no room to be able to get that rim run. So um, I think that Klingon is just a little bit of victim of the way that teams are playing us and he's not quite good enough yet to be able to take advantage of uh, some of that. So um, I also think that part of this was the game plan, right? So much of what UConn did offensively was focused around Adama Sonogo and pick and pop actions. And you can't play 
clinging and pick and pop actions right now. And when he came in, he did a lot of good stuff. Kept balls alive, got second chance opportunities. Um, some of it was against Creighton's backup center. So uh, he did really well in his role. I just don't know how much you could have played him because it really, really limited what UConn wanted to do in the half court. So I think that this was just a matchup thing, um, which leads me to the next question. What do you think about Adama Sonogo and Donovan Klingon playing together more? That's from Husky Century. Um, I don't think this is something that you want to use a ton of. I don't think that this is something where you want to use it in every matchup, specifically because of foul trouble, right? So much of what UConn wants to do offensively revolves around the presence of Adama Sonogo on the court, whether it's throwing the ball to him in the post and letting him play off of that, whether it's running those sets where you get him isolated at the high post and have him go one-on-one against the center, whether it's the pick-and-pop actions, whatever you do, like Adama's involved in all of that. And having having him at the four means that he's going to end up having to guard somebody on the perimeter 90% of the time, right? Do you really want to risk one, him getting tired and two, him getting in foul trouble for a situation like that? I don't think that that's necessarily the best thing that you want to do. I do, however, think that it is a weapon that you want in your arsenal. It's something that you want to be able to use when the matchup dictates it. Like, for example, I think that it'll probably work fairly well against a team like a Providence where they're going to have either Clifton Moore or Ed Croswell on the floor. And at the four, a guy like Bryce Hopkins, like he kind of plays a little bit of bully ball, right? Um, he can get to the offensive glass. You can kind of use him in the mid post. Like he's got, he's not, I, I, I'm going to say a name. Please don't take this as me comparing him to him, but he's got a little Carmelo in his game where he's really good at like those 17 foot mid post isolations. And that's, excuse me. Uh, that's where um, Providence can kind of take advantage of that matchup with Alex Caravan. I also think it's important to note that like Caravan's gotten a lot better in defensively at the four spot. Um, Kaluma was 0 for 6 yesterday. Uh, Omax, um, Omax Prosper, he didn't really do much in the game against Marquette. Fremantle, when they played the the the, the home loss to Xavier, only had nine points. Uh, he held his own against the Paul in some less than ideal matchups, right? Uh, you know, he did well against Georgetown, some of those matches. Like, he's risen to the challenge. It was something where that was the scouting report about a month, month and a half ago. And I think Caribbean's actually gotten a lot better um, defensively. Like he's kind of, he was, he was kind of called out. He's kind of exposed and he's risen to the challenge. I thought that he's gotten really good on that end of the floor. Um, and to me, I don't know if that's necessarily like the biggest weakness that UConn has anymore. So I'm I'm fine with Caravan playing the four defensively. Like I think he's gotten better, um, and we'll see. You know, we got Providence game coming up. Uh, I think it's something that Seton Hall probably has some guys that might be able to take advantage of that matchup a little bit. So we'll see what ends up happening there. But you know, there's another question: Will Simpson Johnson eventually have a role this season? I I don't think so. I doubt it. It's mid February. Caravan's gotten better. The advantage of having Samson Johnson out there was because of what he could do defensively with the length and athleticism, but he's not really a shooter. So you end up with another situation where you don't have a floor space on the floor. Like how can you have him and Andre Jackson playing together when, when you don't really have to respect either of their jump shots. And if you're going to do that, do you really want to have, like, can you put him at the four when, uh, when Sonogo's at the five, do you want to have him out there with Donovan Klingon? Like it just, I don't know if Johnson is going to end up having a role. Like, hopefully he sticks around because that dude is just such a freak of nature athlete. Um, but he's got to figure th- some things out. One and two, he's really got to stay 
healthy. You know, to have not missing the first six weeks of the season when you kind of kind of figured this thing out was probably not ideal for him um long term. Last question I got, then we can wrap this thing up, is what is the best matchup for UConn to be able to win the Big East tournament? And it looks fairly there's a very good chance that UConn's going to end up getting the five seed here. Maybe maybe they'll get the four seed. Most likely, they're going to end up getting the five seed, especially if they beat Seton Hall next Saturday. With the schedule that they have left, um, worst case scenario, I think that they probably like should go three and two, if not four and one, over these next games, depending on what you think about the game at uh, at St. John's, which I'm not super concerned about, and at um, at Villanova, which might be tough, especially if Justin Moore gets it going down the stretch. What that means is in all likelihood, UConn is going to have to beat three of Marquette, Creighton, Xavier, and Providence to be able to cut down the net. That's in uh, Madison Square Garden, and there's no there's no real easy pick there. Those are all those are all second weekend NCAA tournament teams. Those are all teams that are good enough to win the Big East tournament. Those are all teams that are very 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 well coached. Like it's the the Big East tournament. The, the once you get to the quarterfinals and beyond, like. It's going to be an absolute bloodbath. And drawing that first round matchup in the four five game is just it's it's a nightmare, especially if you end up getting Providence in that first game. Like it's almost to the point where um where I think I don't know, you probably don't want to get a the the six seed because you got to play a the a game already. But if it means that you get Xavier or Marquette in the um in the quarterfinals instead of Providence or Creighton in the quarterfinals. I think that's ideal because I, I like the matchups. I like UConn's matchups with, with Marquette and uh, Xavier a little bit more than with Providence and with Creighton. And the reason that I say that is I think with this UConn team right now, they are going to be better against teams that are really good offensively and that can struggle on the defensive end. I have more faith in UConn finding a way to slow down a good offense than I do in them finding a way to be able to be really good offensively against a team that is a good defensive team. Um, and I do think that they, with the lack of size from the interior that Marquette has, I think where you can see them, one, take advantage of that with Sonogo, two, be able to get to the offensive glass, and three, uh, they have the athleticism and the versatility defensively to be able to chase some of those guys around on the perimeter. So I'm not super concerned. About that. Maybe that's the wrong way to phrase it, but I think that that is a matchup that UConn uh, would have a better chance of winning. Same thing with Xavier, especially if Zach Fremantle, you know, he's got this foot injury, and I think he's supposed to come back like a week before the Big East tournament, maybe right around the start of the Big East tournament. So if you're kind of getting them when that dude is not quite, you know, 100% back, I think that that's, Probably a little bit ideal for my money. Fremantle is what, like their second or third best player. So if you can get a team without their second or third best player, he's the matchup that kind of makes him difficult because then you have two guys that can shoot, whatever. Um, like I said, I think Creighton's the best team in the Big East. If you can avoid them until the finals of the Big East tournament, that's probably your best case scenario. Uh, and Providence is just like, with Bryce Hopkins at the four, I think that that makes it, that is where, as I know what I just said about Caravan, but that is where I think that you can kind of expose UConn a little bit defensively. And for my money, what makes Providence so tough is they have three different guys when things break down that can go win a, win a possession for you, that can go make a play, that can go make a shot. 
in Jared Bynum, Devin Carter, and Bryce Hopkins. Combine all that with the fact that I think Ed Cooley is just a terrific matchups-based coach. I don't want to see them until the final either. So uh, I think the best-case scenario for UConn would be Marquette being the one seed, um, Providence and Creighton being the two and the three seed, and then Xavier being the four seed, and UConn ending up as the five seed. But that's kind of putting the cart before the horse, right? Like, go out and beat Seton Hall before we even worry about what the match was going to end up being uh, in the Big East tournament. Um, so that's all the questions that I had, all the questions I'm going to answer for today. But I, I do just want to I want to emphasize one point, and that is I think UConn is – is kind of finding their stride again, right? More than finding their stride. I, th- I think that they've found their stride. Um, they're never going to play up to the level that they were at the start of the season. I just don't think that with the things that defensive defenses have kind of figured out and the amount of tape out there on UConn right now, that they're necessarily going to be able to look like the best team in college basketball like they looked in the month of December. It's just not going to happen. They're a little bit exploitable. We talked about that two weeks ago. I don't need to rehash it. But what I will say is this, with Tristan Newton getting things going again, with Jordan Hawkins kind of finding his footing, um, with some of the tweaks that we're starting to see uh, UConn put in to take advantage of the fact that um, they have Andre Jackson to get him going offensively, uh, with a week off before Seton Hall starts and then a very easy, I don't want to say easy, but a favorable run in, like you have a chance to get this thing going. You have a chance to really get right. You have a chance to get this confidence in a place where you want it to be. And I feel good about UConn being able to make a run. Um, I think that they are capable of winning the Big East tournament. I think that they could beat any of the top four teams in this league. Uh, I don't know if I'm, I really feel great sitting here saying, yeah, I feel good about them finding a way to win three straight against the top four in the Big East. Like, that's going to be fucking brutal. Let's be honest. That's going to be a really difficult thing to do. Uh, but I do think that they are good enough in a vacuum to win any one of those three games against any of those four teams. And then when it comes to the tournament, right, you get out of the conference. Maybe that's what the, maybe that's the answer that UConn needs. Maybe when teams aren't quite as familiar with them, it's a little bit easier to beat them. Uh, just because the scouting report is available on paper, just because coaches know what to do, doesn't mean that those other teams are going to know how to execute it quite as well. So who knows? We'll see. Um, but I do think that this is a top, 15-ish kind of a team in college basketball. I think that they, especially as they're starting to hit the glass again, I think that they're kind of, they're they're figuring this thing out and they're trending in the right direction and they're going to be able to kind of move this thing forward. So I'm, I feel good. I'm not stressing. I hope you aren't stressing. I hope that you uh, appreciated the effort that that team played with on Saturday. And always remember this, as bad as you feel, as frustrated as you are about a loss, as disappointed as you are about a loss, everybody in that locker room feels 15 times worse. All I can, all, all I think you should do, rage tweet, do whatever you want. Don't tag the players. Don't tag the coaches. Don't be that guy. You can rage tweet. You can get your frustrations out. You can do whatever you need to do. Like that, That's what Twitter was invented for. Make sure you support these guys. Make sure you push them because they are trying. The one thing that I don't think you can ask any more out of a group of guys and to bust their ass and give 100% and leave everything on the court. And if you left that Creighton game, if you turn that TV off thinking they did anything else, then I don't know what you were watching me and you were watching a different game. So listen, top dogs, please rate review, subscribe, subscribe to the field of 68 new newsletter, subscribe to the daily premium. Uh, make sure you are subscribed to us on YouTube. March is here, baby. Super Bowl's gone. Let's get it going.
everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.